from the Gospel of John chapter 12. We'll take a little break from 1 Timothy Gray and go to John 12. Uh, it's a story about a perfume and the response that that perfume elicits among the, the cast of characters. And I think what we're gonna, I, what I hope to show you is the responses, think through maybe our response, and then also see uh, the divine response or the, 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 for lack of a better word, the, trini the Trinitarian drama that uh, is part of this perfume. So turn your Bibles to John 12 if you have it or I don't know if you guys are going to put it up on this screen here. Chapter 11, Jesus has performed one of his greatest miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, a man who was in the grave for four days comes back to life. And then here in chapter 12, they appropriately decide to, sh to uh, throw him a celebratory meal you know, to honor him for the great kindness. And, and you know, this, this amazing, you know, amazing thing that happens. And we have several casts of characters included. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, is busy organizing the meal and making sure that it is well-prepared, well-cooked, and served. Lazarus is seated at the table with Jesus and his disciples, a little, I mean, maybe a little shell-shocked. I always envision him to be kind of a quieter version of himself uh, after, you know, coming back from the other side. Jesus and his disciples are seated at the table. He's in the place, the seat of honor. He's being celebrated. And finally, we have this other sister, Mary, who is about to do something with the perfume that makes the arch-villain uh, arch of the Bible, Judas Iscariot, tremendously upset. He's furious by it. But interestingly enough, when you go to Mark's version of the story and Mark's gospel, you find that it wasn't just... Judas, who was upset, we read, quote, and they all rebuked her harshly. So in other words, what this woman is about to do with this perfume essentially makes a, a room full of men begin to shout at her. They're so enraged. What was it about the use of this perfume that elicited such a strong response in all, of, um, all these men's hearts? Well, we read in verse 1 these words. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Six days before the Passover would be the Saturday before Palm Sunday, so the last week of Jesus' life. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and so they gave him a dinner uh, there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Mark's gospel gives us a few details that are not found in John's. We're told the value of the perfume is 300 denarii, which would, you know, 
depending on what currency estimates that you, you go by, which would be like forty to $50,000. We're told it was a pint of perfume that would be approximately 11 ounces. I mean, almost the equivalent of a can of soda. Uh, it was imported from India. It is this pure nard. Apparently, this particular plant grows in, in what would have been a destination far away. And um, it was very costly. All this to say that unless Lazarus and his family were fabulously wealthy people, this most likely was, was a family heirloom. It most likely is the most valuable possession uh, in this home. And because of that reason, and I, I'm speculating here, in fact, I'll do a fair bit of biblical imagination, which we call speculating. Because of that, I, I suspect that this anointing was actually prearranged among the three siblings. Uh, Mary, she would have volunteered for the episode. She's to take this uh, family heirloom, this uh, vase of, of, the, of the nard, and bring it in and do as would be appropriate for a guest of honor at a meal to anoint his head with a few drops of the ointment. And yet something has happened. Um, and I want you to just sort of imagine this, this scenario. Martha's in the kitchen, busy working away, and all of a sudden she, she hears like commotion coming from the, the room next door. There's raised voices of men, and maybe some of the men start walking out, and, and they're coughing and, and gasping for air. And then all of a sudden, it's, she smells it, the fragrance. It, it fills the house. Uh, and, I mean, I imagine that Martha is a firstborn. She's the older sister. That's why she's, you know, doing the hospitality element. And Mary is the bohemian rebel secondborn child, and Lazarus is the baby of the family. But what does a, a firstborn say about the bohemian sister when she's done something crazy again? She says, Mary, what have you done? And Lazarus is sitting at the table, and he might, like, Mary, what have you done? Uh, and the, the, at this point, the meal is ruined. There's no way that you can go on and have a meal. I mean, the fragrance is so strong. What has she done? She has done something that I anticipate she never intended to do. She went in there and was expecting to do the culturally appropriate thing of a few drops. And yet when she sees Jesus, whom she loves sitting at the table, and when she sees her brother back from the dead, at that moment... At that moment, something happens inside of her, like this, this gush of love rises inside of her. And according to Mark's gospel, this is so cool, when you read it in Mark's gospel, what you discover is instead of taking the, the stopper out of the, the, um, the vase, she, she breaks the neck of the vase. She breaks it. She breaks it open. Do you realize what that means? It cannot be reused. It's not going back in. It is, it is all coming out. All $50,000, all 11 ounces, the, 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 the asset that they have, which is the most valuable in, in all of their possession, it's all coming out. And, and it says in Mark's gospel, she anoints his head. And then in John's gospel, she anoints his feet from head to toe. It's almost like she bathes him in the thing that was her very best. 
I mean, isn't that an incredible image? It really is. I want to consider now several of the responses. Uh, the first is, you know, the men say, what a waste, right? What, what a waste. This could have been used and uh, fed a poor family for an, an entire year. What a waste. I wonder, what is the most expensive bottle of wine you've ever bought? So in, I was probably 20 years ago, the Wall Street Journal came out with uh, an idea. They called it Open the Bottle Night. If you are a wealthy wine connoisseur and you have really expensive bottles of wine that age better with time, what they discovered is that, you know, very often those bottles of wine will just stay on the shelf. I mean, what, if you had a $50,000 bottle of wine, I mean, what kind of an event rises to the level of a significance that you would pop that cork open? I mean, a, a birthday? Probably not. An anniversary? Probably not. It, and so the, the best, the best of the best, it inevitably stays on the shelf. You know, the Wall Street Journal also got into the wine selling business, I think, probably about the same time. But they said, here's a solution. Oh, just arbitrarily determine one day of the year and call it the open the bottle night. You, uh, if you can't find a moment, an occasion that's significant enough, then yes, then you have your de facto um, moment to invite your friends and, and open, uh, pop the cork and, and share it all together. On one level, um, I cannot relate to that because I think the most expensive bottle of wine I ever purchased was like 20 bucks. Total, you know, I, I drink wine out of boxes, right? Total cheapskate. But on another level, all of us can relate to it because um, there's an instinct inside of us that when we're holding our bottle, whatever it at, that is, when we're holding that valuable commodity or asset, we are afraid of wasting it. We don't want to waste it. When it's in my hand, um, I don't want to waste it. And that's what they said, $50,000 gone in a blink of an eye. Who does that? Who do really, like, who drops $50,000 on Jesus in the blink of an eye? What a waste. I don't know what your family of origin was like. I grew up in a nominally Christian um, home where I was taught financial money management. Like, that was a big deal. Um, financial management was kind of the next step of godliness. You know, you're, you're supposed to save. You're supposed to learn the value of a dollar. You're, you're praised as a child when you're frugal. You're praised when you put more in your bank account. Is that, does that describe anyone? Right? We're told you, you got to save, you be a saver, you got to be smart, don't make impulsive decisions, pray about them before, if you're super spiritual, pray about them before you make them. And I mean, look, like Dave, Dave Ramsey's stuff is all, those are good rules of thumb, right? But when you're operating by that playbook, you never drop 50 G's on Jesus, do you? I mean, I think when, at least when I look at myself in the mirror, I see a guy who, who wouldn't do this? Who wouldn't do this? Even if Jesus was sitting in the room, who wouldn't do this? Because I'm so afraid, we are so afraid of wasting it. I wonder if you have noticed this, this aspect of life, that spontaneous generosity is surprisingly difficult the more you have. 
You think it would just be the opposite. The more I have, the more open-handed I am, but it, that is not how most wealth accumulation works. The more you have, the more you feel the burden of using it well. And so you have this little financial accountant that's always like speaking in your mind, always weighing this and that, and, and there's a lot of people who want things from you, and you don't want to be taken advantage of. And, and you know, you, you have a tremendous amount of fear about making the wrong financial decisions. At least I do. <laughs> um, now, I think Mary intended to pour just a drop or two, but when she was in there, something exploded inside of her, and she realized that a few drops was not nearly enough, and it was, I mean, call it what you will, it was a gush of love. It was a, a rush of the Holy Spirit. It was, it was a, a thought that demanded action. And what I appreciate so much about this woman is that she acted upon it. What oftentimes we do, it's, it's this like theory of moral procrastination. Have you ever heard that before? We, what we do when sometimes there will be a demand, a, a belief that rises inside of us that says, you must do this right now. And our answer to that is, well, let me think about it. <laughs> let me sleep on it. Let me pray about it. I mean, those of you who maybe have been in church for a long time, you've had missionaries stand up uh, before your church and you heard them give their spiel, their pitch. You, heard, you knew that the, the cause was worthy. You knew the need was significant. Inside of you, there was a voice that said, you know, you really should give to this. And yet, if you tap the brakes long enough, it's amazing how the, um, the impulse it dies. It's like you can quench the Holy Spirit. And so when you wait, when you even wait 24 hours and wait till the next morning, isn't it strange how that demand no longer feels so demanding? What a waste. That's what they said. But as the story will show, and, and this is the strangest irony of all ironies, the real waste, it's 30 shekels of silver, isn't it? The man who says, what a waste, it could have been sold for, the, for uh, you know, paid a poor family for an entire year, sells out Jesus. Any idea what's the modern-day equivalent of 30 shekels of silver? Again, depending on currency exchange stuff, I mean, 250 bucks, 250. And so you have this ultimate contrast being painted between a man who will sell Jesus out for 250 bucks because of his greed and a woman who will drop 50 G's on him in an instant. Now, before I move on, um, I've met a lot of people um, pastoring who, uh, who have plenty of means and yet are very, they're very afraid that when the rainy day comes, there won't be enough there. I think what happened, and maybe, Gray, you've talked about this before, but there's a scarcity mindset that, that it was kind of accumulated over time. It began with the Great Depression generation. You know, your, your grandparents or great-grandparents went through very hard and lean times, and then they passed on to their children that, ah, you got to worry about, about what's going to happen. And this, there's, you can, we have a whole ton of middle and upper-middle-class Christians in America today who are just afraid that when the, when the apocalypse hits, there's not going to be enough in the bank account. And we live, we actively live with the scarcity mindset, um, and particularly when you think about the, the astronomical cost of end-of-life end of healthcare, you're like, oh, I just, I'm so afraid when I get into my 70s, there's not going to be enough there. 
Those are legitimate concerns, but perhaps, you know, the greatest waste is just all of the wasted opportunities that we let pass us by, all of the worry we spend on our fears. That might be the greatest waste that we um, will have to give some measure of account to, to Jesus. At least it's something to consider. Okay, we're on to the second response. And you don't have to be an expert in Middle Eastern, first century cultural taboos to know that something weird is happening in this passage with, with her behavior. So a, a Middle Eastern woman would just have been expected to wear her hair up almost in a bun. That's how they did it all the time. The only time you were allowed to wear your hair down might be in the presence of your husband. I mean, those women in that patriarchal society were not even allowed to let their hair down in the presence of boys if they weren't their sons. I mean, it was, it, does, can you get a sense of like how ca- cultural taboo that is? So for her to walk in and, um, and begin to let her hair down, like these men, they would have been so triggered by that. It would have absolutely flipped them out. And then to do the unthinkable, the unthinkable, and to take her hair, the very thing that should be on the top of her head, and to begin to you know, caress the feet of Jesus, as her hair is, is brushing the oil in between her toes. Like, th- that would have sent these guys into bonkers land. They, they w- could not have, they could not, I mean, what, what a scandal. What a lack of, does this woman have no sense of dignity? Th- who does she think she is? Something that's really interesting is that, you know, these guys spent three years of their lives with Jesus. They're at the very end of the story. Three years. They, they were his disciples. He was their rabbi. They served him in so many different capacities. You know the one thing that not a single man at that table had ever done over the course of those three years? Touch his feet. Nobody there had touched his feet. There was, I think, a rule on the books in the Jewish Mishnah that said a disciple can be asked to do anything by his rabbi except untie his sandals and touch his feet because their feet were literally that filthy, that disgusting. That was simply the work of a slave. Only a slave would touch your feet. And so for a woman in that situation to take her hair in her hands um, <laughs> it's amazing. It really is. Yeah, they had to have been thinking, like, does she, is this some type of performance art that she's, this is, is she trying to, like, mimic what the prostitute did earlier in the Gospels? Does she have not even an ounce of self-respect? I think the one thing I want you to know is that had we grown up in that cultural context, we would have been tripped out just as much as they were. It's so easy to read it and, you know, give the the applause for her, but had we grown up with those kinds of sensibilities, it would have flipped us out. All that to say, she doesn't care. She doesn't care what the men think. She doesn't care what her brother thinks or her sisters think or what you think or what I think or what anybody thinks. Um, She has... I wonder if she didn't even care what she thinks. She has achieved, and at least in this one moment, she has achieved something that we all long for, and that is the freedom of (laughs) self-forgetfulness, to to just no longer be conscious or worried about the eyes of others, even our, our own eyes. 
You know, dance instructors will often speak to their students about, they, they use the phrase dancing in the wild. And by that, they mean take whatever it is that you're learning in the ballroom, in the studio, and go out onto the club floor, go out um, on Friday nights, go out to the wedding reception, and just kind of lose your inhibitions and, and go and do it and, and dance in the wild. And, and they give that instruction knowing that hardly any of us have, have the courage to do that because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. And like, I mean, for me to dance in front of you, I, I would, no way. <laughs> and yet that is what she's doing, like in this room, in front of these men, total crazy power imbalance that it, that's here. She's dancing in the wild um, by washing the feet of Jesus. I'll tell you the significance of that in a second. But I want to tell you one other story. John Stott some of you are familiar with the name. He was uh, one of the greatest pastors of the, 20, the 20th century, uh, wrote probably 40 books. Gray and I have books, John Stott books on, on our bookshelves. I mean, am- amazing guy. Uh, started All Souls Church in London, which is still one of the, the real blazing lights of, um, of Anglicanism. Any case, John Stott was, um, he took a trip with the, a, a Latin American theologian by the name of Rene Padilla, and they went into Argentina one, um, for some kind of conference. And this story is told, it was raining just buckets. Maybe it's in Buenos Aires and just raining like crazy. And the cab driver drops them off to go to the hotel several blocks away from the, the, the front of the hotel. So they're having to just run through the muddy, wet streets, just getting drenched. And they get into the hotel after a long day of travel and they just fall onto their beds, exhausted. They just kick off their clothes, fall into their bed. The next morning, Rene Padilla comes out into the common area where they were to, to meet, and he finds John Stott sitting there washing his muddy shoes. And Padilla's like, what are you doing? Uh, you're John Stott. <laughs> what, are you, I, what are you doing washing my, my, um, my shoes? And, and Stott says, well, I mean, Jesus told us that we're to wash each other's feet, but you have a shower for that. So I'm doing what I can. <laughs> and if you know anything about this story, a couple nights later, what does Jesus do? But the rabbi, the master, washes his disciples' feet. Did you ever notice that the domino effect gets triggered by her? She washes his feet, he washes their feet, and he tells them to go, and we're all to wash one another's feet. It's just this, would you have ever traced it back to her? <laughs> it's so beautiful. Um, I, I, I know that if we had been in that room, we would have been scandalized by her behavior, but uh, if we're being honest, we see something in her behavior that we all wish for. An uninhibited love for someone else that is so intense, that doesn't hold back, that pushes all of the chips in, and uh, that, that just doesn't care, doesn't give a flip about what everybody else sees. And, and yet I want to I be cautious and not preach the passage the typical way, because it's so easy to take any exemplar in the Bible, like this woman, and say, she's generous, go be generous. She's uninhibited in her love, go be uninhibited in her love. And, and, and part of the reason it's, the story is there is to press us towards that um, like asymptote, if you will. And yet, if we're just being honest, like there is so much inhibiting us on the inside of us from having this kind of, 
an overwhelming expression for Jesus Christ. Like we are way too damaged usually. Uh, we're, we're way too, you know, messed up. And so what I would encourage you to say is, is Lord, if I am ever going to give you everything that I have, like this woman says, if I, if I am ever going to give you everything that I am, if I am ever going to lay down all of my sense of dignity, if I'm going to give you the, the treasures of my possessions, if I'm going to say there's nothing I won't do for, your, for, for you, Lord, um, I need you first. Right? To say that and to speak that to me, <laughs> to, to really let the gospel go down deep into my core. I'm really into this distinction right now between our periphery and our core. And the reality is that so often our core goes untouched. It it goes untouched for far too long by God and the Holy Spirit, by the message of the gospel. And I I need you, Lord, to touch my heart before my heart is is ever going to be yours. I also really think that it's important for us to just to speak honestly with God. Have you ever done, it's almost cathartic, but you know, the way that we pray is we, we bow our heads, we, we fold our hands, and we come in here and we pray silently. But there is something tremendously cathartic to like go out into uh, a, 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 a desolate place a place where there aren't any other people, and just speak to God from the top of your voice and, and to say, Lord, this is the kind of relationship I want to cultivate with you. This is the kind of relationship I want you to cultivate with me. I think there's something powerful when we vocalize it and we speak it out loud instead of so silently um, saying it inside of our heads. It's, it's freeing, at least... You know, I have found, found it freeing. After pastoring for 20 years, I know how easy it is to come to church and sing a love song, a, a great love song to Jesus, and yet just feel at your core a million miles away from that. Like, um, it's like standing on the, the shore watching a ship go out to sea and saying, I wish I was on that ship, and I, and I know that I'm not. I was listening to Ed Sheeran the other day, and one of his songs, he asked the rhetorical question, how did I get so faded? How did I get so faded? And, and you, can, you can be in church in a long time and just start to fade out in the inside. I know that doesn't describe everyone in this room, but it's got to describe somebody why don't you just be honest with him and tell him that? Um, that's a first step. Why not just admit it to God? Um, I wish there was some magic formula that Gray and I could give you to give you a generous, spontaneous, uh, dance in the wild, kind of uninhibited love for Jesus Christ. And like we could, if we could package that for somebody, um, we, we would be like, you know, what mega superstar pastors but I mean, it really comes down to the Holy Spirit making the, the penny drop and, and touching your heart and let, letting the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection go deep. Um, and so in, in, invite him to do that. Invite him to do that. Uh, Mary had some advantages that we don't have. She got to walk into a room and see her brother who had been dead for four days sitting there. But we have certain advantages that she doesn't have. Like, we have this whole book. <laughs> she didn't have this whole thing. We, we have the, the beginning, middle, and end of the story. She didn't have that. We have Tim Keller. <laughs> she didn't have that. 
You know, he says, what greater value could you possibly have than to be delighted in and sacrificed for by the maker of the universe? She didn't have that cool, cool line, but we do. She didn't know that the only love that won't disappoint you is the one that cannot change, that cannot be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live, a, a love that, cannot, that death can't even take away from you. And that love is yours in Jesus Christ. She didn't know that so fully, but we do. Uh, let me wrap this up. I've probably gone too long. Um, the response is, what a waste. What shameful behavior. Um, the meal's ruined. We've got to leave here. Those are some of the responses. With the fragrance that overpowering, um, they had to be mad. But there's a final response that I only discovered as I was restudying the passage. Remember how I said earlier that this takes place on the Saturday before Palm Sunday? This happens right at the beginning of what we call Holy Week, the most significant week in the Bible, the most significant week that we commemorate every year with our Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter uh, Sunday services. Um, Don't you realize what this means? I mean, would you just do do this with me really quick? Take a deep breath in, like you're smelling something. It was 11 ounces. It was $50,000. She put it on his head. She put it on his feet. It all came out. He smelled it the whole week. They smelled it the whole week. You can smell a prince around a corner before you see him. You can smell a king on the back of a donkey as he's coming over the hill. They smelled it the whole week. Uh, This woman anoints Jesus with the fragrance, the kingly fragrance of grace, of love. I mean, when Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane reaches in, uh, pulls closer to kiss him on the cheek, he smelled it. When the soldiers are close enough to put a crown of thorns on his head and to beat him and and say, Hail, King of the Jews, they could smell it. When Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus off the cross, broken and as bloodied and emaciated as it was, I have to think that the fragrance, the hint of the fragrance, was still there in the air. Um, Can you smell it? Can you smell it? I think that... uh, This woman should be in our top 10 list. You know, oftentimes we'll talk about our favorite people in the Bible. Maybe it's Paul, maybe it's Peter, maybe it's John. Why isn't it Mary? Why isn't it this Mary? In the Old Testament, you would have prophets who were sent, who were commissioned to go and single out the man who was going to be the new king of Israel. And they would go and they would pour oil on his head. Don't you see what she's doing? Like in the New Testament, the prophet is a prophetess who anoints him with the, uh, the oil of, of grace, of fragrance. I don't even know how to finish the sermon other than I pray, I pray that you would smell it. Amen. Let's pray.